Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Robin Minter Smyers, the partner in charge of the Cleveland office of the law firm Thompson Hine, and I'm a member of the City Club's board of directors. I'm pleased to introduce today's forum, a conversation on what it means to be black and biracial in America today, featuring Julie Lithcott Hames, author of Real American, a memoir, and Barack uh, Kitwana, Senior Media Fellow at the Jamestown Project and author of The Hip Hop Generation. The intersection of race, identity, and social acceptance are reoccurring themes here at the City Club. But today's forum presents a unique and personal perspective. Julie Lithcott Hames, the only child of an African-American father and white British mother, is here to discuss her experiences as the other growing up a biracial black woman in the late 1970s and early 1980s in New York, Wisconsin, and Virginia. A graduate of Stanford, most of Ms. Lithcott Hames' career was spent at the university where she served as Associate Dean for Student Affairs at Stanford Law School, Assistant to the President, and Dean of Freshman and Undergraduate Advising. Affectionately known as Dean Julie, she was the 2010 winner of a major award at Stanford for her contributions to undergraduate education. She left Stanford in 2012 to pursue a Master of Fine Arts at the California College of the Arts. In addition to Real American, Ms. Lithcott Haynes is the author of New York Times bestselling book, How to Raise an Adult, Break Free of, Over of the Overparenting Trap, and Prepare Your Kids for Success. As the mother of three tweens, it's something I need to read. Ms. Lithcott Haynes will be in conversation um, with Bakari Kitwana, a journalist, activist, and political analyst whose commentary on politics and youth culture has been featured in the national media. A native of Long Island, New York, but now a resident of Northeast Ohio, Mr. Kitwana holds a Bachelor of Arts and two master's degrees from the University of Rochester. Most recently, he was named a fellow and visiting scholar at the Institute for the Study of Women and Gender in the Arts and Media at Columbia College. But first, we're going to hear what it means to be the other from a local poet, 21-year-old Munisa Halim. Ms. Halim has been writing poetry in the Cleveland Heights area for years and takes her passion for poetry and self-expression everywhere she goes. As the former Cleveland Heights Teen Poet Laureate and a member of the 2015 Brave New Voices team, Ms. Halim possesses a keen understanding of the importance of poetry and the power it has to make an impact. Ladies and gentlemen, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Ms. Halim, followed by a conversation with Bakari Kitwana and Julie Lithcott Haynes. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Um, this poem is inspired by the Black Girls Rock movement. So, 
I'm just gonna start. <clears throat> to the re-education of black girl magic, loving oneself, and the feeling of nostalgia. When did black girl magic die? Did it even die, or was its mind and body beaten blue? Who tried to kill this? Kill us. Tell us what we can be and what we cannot do. When our ancestries of queens, we still carry with us. For all the black girls who weren't quite black enough, whose speech was exclusive to another race, or the black girls whose twang was too in your face because ain't nothing worse than a black girl who talk white or talk black, or a black girl with good hair, or black hair, or a black girl that is too black, or black girls in general, who battle their anxiety about their black culture. I will carry the essence of black women. I will not be bitter on this quest to succeed. I will stand for black women and defy every stereotype for all the black girls who shop at Lush on their self-care days for the black girls who are just learning how to self-care, for the black girls who at school and a job, two jobs, three jobs, making ends meet, for the black girls supporting other black girls, for all the black girls taking it one day at a time, every, in every shape, size, color, curl pattern, and texture, I do this for you so you know that you are strong that we are strong, that we can and that we will, so that we won't have to re-educate the next generation. They'll just know. Amazing. Thank you for that, uh, Mooney. And I want to uh, bring attention to the fact that as uh, Dean Julie has been on her 25 or so. You can just so, call me Julie. I like Dean Julie. I like the <laughs> ring to it. <laughs> as she's been on her 25 city uh, or so tour, she's been having a poet open up for her uh, everywhere. She goes, you want to talk about why you do that? Absolutely. I want to thank you, Mooney. Um, thank you, everybody, for being here. But Mooney um, is the, the most recent youth poet to join me on this book tour, which is coming to a close. I, feel, I felt that as the tour was um, coming about, working with my publicist, Leslie Brandon, who's amazing, who's in the room. I mean, yes, let's give Leslie a round of applause. Yes, because when an author says, oh, hey, I want to do something completely different, you know, Leslie says, okay, what is it and how can I support you? And I said, well, I have the privilege of a book tour, of the chance to be in conversation with important people, to have an audience, to have a platform, a podium, a microphone. I want to step to the side for a moment and make room for somebody else coming up the path behind me. And um, so thank you, Mooney, for joining me on this journey, for being the most recent youth reader on this book tour. And she's taking home a signed copy of my book and an honorarium because we must pay artists. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Leslie didn't know about that part. She's like, honorarium? Don't worry. <laughs> I got it. Let's talk about the book a little bit. Um, you, why, don't, why don't you start with your origin story? I think one of the great things about the book is you go into this rich history of your family. Um, and I think so often um, the ways we end up talking about race forgets all about 
where we came from before before that moment. Can Absolutely. you talk about that some? Thank you so mm -hmm. much, Bakari. Um, it's an honor to be with you and to honor my slave ancestor. I'll start with her. Sylvie was a slave in Charleston, South Carolina in the late 1700s. I am her great, 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 great granddaughter. Uh, she was three-fifths of a human when our country was founded. She made me a real American. My father's father uh, came from Guyana here to the United States and was a physician educated at BU. My father was a physician born in 1918, also educated at BU. My father helped eradicate smallpox. My father was an appointee of President Jimmy Carter. He was Assistant Surgeon General and Head of Public Health for the United States. Um, I am proud to be a third generation college educated African American. Mm -hmm. My white British mother is from coal miners in the north of England. She is an immigrant to this country. My white parent is the immigrant to this country. She was naturalized in 1969. They met in West Africa, in Ghana, uh, where my dad was doing work on measles and smallpox. They had me in Lagos, Nigeria. I was born to an American dad and a British mom. Britain didn't claim citizenship through women, only men, so I'm not British. America said the child of an American wherever is American. And I never claimed Nigerian citizenship, although I was apparently allowed to up until I was 18. I didn't investigate that in time. So I'm an American, uh, but did not live here until I was a year and a half uh, years old. And I've been here ever since. And you grew up in uh, New York and DC and- Mostly Wisconsin. And, Wisconsin. and here I'm in Cleveland, yeah. so. Now, now tell me this, uh, uh, the, one of the most uh, mind-boggling things for me in reading the book was was it, is it called corn tasseling? Detasseling. Detasseling. Tell us what that is. <laughs> well, if I knew, if I understood it better, maybe I wouldn't have quit after two days. Um, this was a summer after my freshman year in college at Stanford. I knew I needed to uh, work that summer, and I looked through the Wisconsin State Journal for jobs, and corn detasseling came up, and I'd heard of it as a job Wisconsin kids did. And you're, um, you're basically working the rows. You're, the corn is, you know, however high it is, high enough that not too high that you can't reach it, and you're trying to take the tassel off. It has to do with some cross-pollination situation. There are people in the audience nodding their heads like, you're getting kind of right. <laughs> right. You have to take some of the tassels off so that the corn doesn't you know, pollinate itself and whatnot. Anyway, yeah. it, was, um, it was hard labor under the sun um, in agriculture, and uh, I lasted for two days. <laughs> and everyone on the crew was white and male, and they looked at me like, who are you? What are you doing in our truck? I feel like the book is so rich in so many different ways. And um, I think the first time I kind of read it through, I was like, what's, you know, what's going on here? And then I, second time I'm going through, I start thinking about uh, Toni Morrison's uh, The Blue Aside. So I'm just kind of curious as to why, um, was, that, was that a point of reference for you? Um, were you trying to, um, in terms of your writing style there, is, it, is, it, is, it, is there some creati creative fiction happening there as well? Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the book is a prose poetry memoir, and there are places where the prose violates the rules of syntax uh, in order to express the feeling or um, uh, idea that I'm trying to convey. Um, Toni Morrison, definitely an influence from fiction. Uh, more recently, uh, Claudia Rankine's work, Citizen, was quite um, influential as I was an MFA and writing student trying to figure out how to make sense of the, the topics on, on race and my lived life that were kind of bubbling up and out of me. Uh, Cornelius Eady wrote an amazing um, small book called Brutal Imagination on the Susan, Susan Smith 
situation. This was the white woman in South Carolina who announced that a black man had carjacked her car with her two young boys strapped in car seats and we went on a nationwide manhunt for black men. Turns out the white woman, Susan Smith, had strapped her kids into the car, put them at the edge of a lake, took off the parking brake and let that car roll into the lake where her children slowly drowned. And Brutal Imagination is um, this brutal account of what that feels like for black men to be, you know, put into that role, America's oldest villain, that fictional narrative, America's oldest villain, the black man, um, in a very present context. So those are some of my influences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to I want to read um, a couple of uh, passages. The book is so strong, but I just wanted to, and I want you to talk about this. And one interview that I saw you had done recently, you made reference to W. B. Du Bois saying that identity is partly how you, how others see you and partly how you see yourself. And I feel like so much of the first part of the book is about how others, others. see you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and here's one of the things you said. The self-loathing of being both too black for whites and not black enough for blacks, I couldn't even locate a self with which to love myself. And there's another place where you say, I was coping without knowing I was coping, like wearing a shirt inside out all day without realizing it. I thought that was pretty amazing. <laughs> Can you talk more about the, the self-loathing, because I mean, it was, it was so dark to me when I was reading it, you know what I mean? You know, just, just that level of... of, of um... It was dark to you because you were surprised someone like me would have felt it? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> okay. I, yeah, I mean, so I, was, I was surprised by it, and I mean, and I was surprised. I mean, I don't know. I, I guess you know, I was talking to a friend of mine. Uh, her name is Lisa Fager Bediaco, okay. who's biracial. Yeah. Because I mean, this book really had a, it really hit me hard, yeah. you know. And she and so she said to me that, you know, what you're. Desc I mean, I think as a as a a person who grows up in a black community, yeah. and, and in a poor black community, yeah. you're not really. Um, you, you she said, well, you have time in which you have a safe space. Mm -hmm. She's like, being biracial, it's like you got Fox News on all the time and you can't turn it off. Mm. So, <laughs> nice. So, exactly. So can you talk? Nice. Can, yeah, can absolutely. Talk about, absolutely. Yeah. So I think there's so much that just came out, and I just want to say a couple things. First yeah. of all, I stand here, I sit here acknowledging my tremendous privilege. I'm highly educated. I'm upper middle class. I have light skin. I have a white mother. Um, and all of those things afford me some privilege in life and other things that I'm not even aware of afford me privilege. I grew up biracial in mostly white towns in the 70s and 80s when biracial was not a term. We were mixed, we were mulatto, that term going all the way back to slave days, denoting the half and half mixture of blacks and whites. I was otherized, I was made fun of, I, they wrote the N-word on my locker in my all-white high school. I was student council president of the whole damn school. Can I say that here? Damn. <laughs> of the whole damn school. And they wrote the N-word on my locker on my 17th birthday. And I plunged into, I mean, I was already feeling like, I don't know where I belong. I don't know if I'm good enough. You know, people are constantly asking me and, you know, questions. I mean, you know, but I plunged into the self-loathing the day that happened, I think. I mean, it was building. But that day, I told no one. And I was ashamed that it had happened to me, and I told no one for 25 years. But I know I spent those 25 years trying never to be called the N-word again, which meant performing the part the white people would never call the N-word. It meant trying to be the black person they wouldn't loathe, discard, disregard, be violent toward. And so in order to perform a self to please others, you have to be in this place of self-loathing. You're certainly abandoned the self. You know, Maybe you don't have to actually loathe yourself. But as I unpack the truth of my 
truth, I realized, you know, though outwardly successful, degrees from all of these important places, doing the jobs that society applauds, privileged in so many ways, I could not love myself because American racism had taught me that I didn't matter, that I was worthless, and that I did not have the right to have access to the things that I had access to. You know, you, um, when I was reading uh, your book, there was a um, article that uh, I read in Time Magazine by a hip hop artist named Vic Mensa. He talks about going to Palestine, um, and, he, and what he says is, um, for the first time, I wasn't the nigger. Yeah. You know, and I just you thought it was say such that a- here? Hey, we hey. Say, we're saying it. Sorry. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't make it. We didn't make it up. I shouldn't have said the N-word when I did. Well, I yeah. mean, he, so, so you, I feel, grappled with It was with the first time he wasn't called nigger. Yeah, so he's like, this is mm -hmm. the first time I can feel like I'm, I'm, I'm one, I feel American because I got this American passport. Right. And two, I'm standing outside of the experience that's right. of being exactly. a victim. Yeah, and that's how yeah. my father felt. You know, as a physician coming from America, working to help folks develop kind of a National Institutes of Health in Ghana, he was 40-something, and he said to my mother, and I know this from her because he passed 20-some years ago, it's the first time in my life, you know, I'm not the nigger. You know, it's the first time in my life my race is not the barrier or the reason. Right. You know, it is not about that. They actually called him Obruni, which is a term for white man. And my father was very dark, but not as dark as Ghanaians. Yeah, they actually called me that when I was in Ghana. Okay, there you go, right? So, but they Imagine. weren't, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a term used to discriminate against you, no. or didn't, right? It was no. just sort of. No, it's just what they said. They said. Like, you're not black, black. Right. <laughs> you're not black like we're black. Right. And you want to say, well, come back home with me and I'll show you. <laughs> just how, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, uh, in, in the book, I think one of the things that was also striking to me was the ways in which class complicates racial identity. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'm just, I'm curious if you saw it that way. I mean, as reading it, that's, yeah. that's kind of, I feel like, yeah. you know, there are things you're dealing with that I hadn't thought about yeah. know, as, a, as a young person. And I feel like we have a lot of similar points of reference. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, my parents being middle and then upper middle class gave me access to all kinds of opportunities, you know, a better education perhaps than I would have had. And, and, um, a more enriched childhood with that money, the stuff that that extra money can buy. Um, and yet, I think what the book, what I hope the book conveys is that racism is agnostic to class. Racism doesn't know how much money you have in your bank account or where your daddy, you know, works. Um, you're walking down the street, you know, Barack Obama walking down the street before he was Barack Obama, you know, just a black man, um, you know, couldn't get a cab. And, um, and so I think it, I, I am trying to illustrate this sort of intersection of, of race and class. And when you are upper middle class, then, and you're in white places, you hear some white folks talking about the stuff they talk about, you know, and they don't realize if the lighter you are, you know, the more you're passing, they don't realize who you are. And then they say that thing. I had, I was at a party in Palo Alto where I live and somebody showed up at that party. It was a murder mystery party, and somebody showed up in blackface in 2014 or 15, you know? And I was the one who overreacted by calling attention to it, you know? Right? So it gives you access. You know, I had people, the people touching my hair and playing with me like I'm a zoo animal. You know, that was at Stanford University. I'm from educated people right. who ought to know better. Right. Yeah. You, you, um, you do a good job, I feel, talking about 
Americanness and really kind of pushing back on the idea of what it means to be American. I mean, I I I, um, I can remember when uh, President Trump during the campaign when he was running um, and he was saying, you know, this this idea of uh, uh, make America uh, great again and. It, it, you know, in the beginning, it felt like this is a guy who doesn't really think he's going to win, right? And I felt like he was kind of like messaging globally to people outside of America that America is a white country, right? E right. Even though we know it isn't, right? Right. But so, so I'm curious if you can like go deeper into the ways in which you talk about and you kind of push back on this idea of Americanness. <clears throat> I can hear Sarah Palin's voice. Real Americans want this and that. Uh, Donald Trump's voice, real Americans. And I know when they say that, they're excluding almost half of us. And it incenses me that a nation whose founding documents speak of liberty and justice for all, even though we know that promise is so unmet. And with the Statue of Liberty, with her tablet, being a nation of immigrants, that we are now in a moment where we are actually talking about who the immigrants need to be in order to be worthy of being here, when we all know that so, so many immigrants are so, so much more worthy if we use those standards of qualified, educated, right, than so many of the folks who are here right now, you know, who are voting for Trump, right? So we have this, um, we, we are shutting doors and we are carving lines and um, I don't think there is a real American, but I have reclaimed this term for us as long as they're using it to say we don't belong here. I'm gonna say, oh yes, we do, we are real Americans. Um, you know, I, in the book, I sort of refer back to or, or pay homage to Sojourner Truth. I say, ain't I a real American? You know, ain't I a woman? Ain't I a real American? Yes. You know, as I'm, I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about uh, Mooney's uh, uh, poem. Beautiful. And one of the things that she said that really, that really struck me was, you know, this, this idea. But it made me think of um, Randall Robinson mm. um, when he wrote the book, The Debt. And one of the things he talked about was having to go uh, as, a, as a grown man <laughs> who was an attorney from educated at Harvard, and he, and he goes to the front door to, of, a, of a building, and uh, he's coming to do business, and a young kid tells him, oh, you got to go around uh, to, uh, the to the back. Yeah, so I, that, that made me uh, think about and, and what you were saying. Last thing I wanted to, uh, oh, one of the other things I wanted to ask you is about your kids. like. I feel like our children challenge us in ways that we don't imagine. You know what I mean? We have them, they're little, then they start getting big and they start saying stuff and they start telling us and making us do stuff. Yeah. How do they push back on your ideas about race? Uh, they don't push back. Um, you know, in my house, so I grew up in these all white towns with black and white parents saying, you're black, we're a black family. My mother would say we're a black family. Uh, as I say in the book, she was the blackest white lady I knew, like she was trying to be black, but there were no cultural touchstones to blackness because we were in all white towns. And I have tr worked hard not to replicate that mistake with my own children. I talk with them about who they're from. I talk with them about issues germane to the black community. Um, they're, they're, I married a white man, a white Jewish man. My son looks more like me, darker than me. My daughter looks more like her dad. And so they go out in the world in terms of Du Bois and identity. Right now they are children, they're teenagers, and their identity is largely how the world sees them and treats them and what the world says to them about how they don't match each other and they don't match me if, or they don't match their dad. They get all those messages. My job is try, to try to ensure they leave our home with a solid sense of self 
so that when the world tries to tell them they're not good enough or they don't belong or they can't or they shouldn't, you know, they have that well of um, of love. I mean, it's rooted in, in self-love that will um, give them the perseverance to keep going. You know, I think yeah. they're, they don't yet, they're young. So my yeah. son is 18, he's 16, my daughter's 16. They haven't yet, and we live in Silicon Valley, right. and despite the blackface lady, you know, there isn't a whole <laughs> lot of in-your-face uh, yeah. racism that they have yet encountered. Okay. And yet I know okay. my black son awaits America, and America awaits him. Yeah. And I have given the talk, my husband and I, the talk that we black parents have with our children um, about how to simultaneously love themselves fiercely and be safe out there. I feel like and your I first, know I don't need to tell Cleveland. I feel like your it. your first the first half of the book I really felt really uh, pushed me more towards Morrison, Toni Morrison. The second half of the book I feel is pushing more towards Ralph Ellison. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so I feel like uh, you you talk about the one drop and Ellison. I could just see Ellison in the painting. Uh, you know the the main character of yeah. Invisible, Invisible Man in the yeah. in the painting lab. Yeah. Right. He's making paint and you know white white paint yeah. right yeah um let's end because we're close to the time but i wanted to just ask you i feel also like as you move to the end of the book and yeah. you talk about your son now yeah. and we know what happened to timia rice here in cleveland um can you can you talk with us some about um you know yeah how do how do we move forward and yeah. it seems like your turning point kind of coincides with hurricane katrina and then also the black lives matter movement. absolutely so my turning point you know, with a coach working my issues out. Um, to cut a very long story short, I came to terms with the fact that as a child and young adult, I hated being black, was afraid of black people, and wanted to do whatever white people valued. And I spoke the truth of that to my own consciousness. I said it to myself, to my coach. It released the shame of all of that from me. I thought I was the only black person who'd ever felt that way until I started sharing with people I was close to and people started saying, yeah, you know, I've experienced some of that too. And I realized that what I had experienced um, um, brought me even closer to blackness rather than alienating me from it. Um, I turned around, so when I, uh, you know, was able to sort of love, not sort of, when I finally loved my black self, um, then I, my voice shifts, and in the book, the voice shifts um, to being, I think, uh, much, well, it's just a shift. It is a, it is, um, it's Ellison. It's Ellison. <laughs> I'm honored by it's that, Ellison. obviously. Can I just read for, three, for a few minutes and then we'll, mm -hmm. okay. So the book is, uh, this is toward the end of the book as I'm emerging from self-loathing. Um, <clears throat> white Americans, you think your whiteness makes you better than the rest of us. You make us your scapegoat, your excuse for your violent rage. Stop saying it's all of us, you say my white brethren, because you want to be treated as an individual instead of as a stereotype. And I will get out of bed anyway and go out into the streets of America to do my work, to speak. We the people cannot continue to abide the stories of police and civilians on witness stands telling us that in just seeing our black bodies, they were terrified. You have to be terrified for a justifiable reason. The skin God gave us is not a reason for you to be justifiably terrified. We are terrified of you. We continue to try to forgive, to live. Even dying and in death, we receive no mercy. Eric Garner told police, I can't breathe 
when they had him in a chokehold for selling cigarettes illegally? Tamir Rice lay on the ground and the policemen standing over him did not offer CPR to this child they knew by then was only a child with a toy. Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown were left dead on the sidewalk for hours. The local police do not even lift these boys' bodies off the sidewalk, do not properly care for the corpse. The mothers frantically call, text, plead, have you seen my son? Please help me find my son. My son, I look at the faces of Trayvon, Freddie, little Tamir, and I see you, my son, my precious son, my beautiful black boy. I see you grow taller, grow muscles, grow a man's face, and I weep for the future self who will leave this home and my son, you did not ask to be born. I chose you. I asked you to be mine. I gave you a skin of brown. And you are exquisite beyond measure. You hiding there behind your draperies across the street. It was you who said there were multiple juveniles who do not live in the area or, quote, have permission to be there, which you know because you guard the white experience and you know who belongs at the pool and who does not. It was you who saw a black man getting into a nice car and decided he was stealing it and called the police who trailed him, pulled him over and pounced five at a time on his 25-year-old black body, this former student of mine, this man now getting a PhD in engineering at Northwestern, driving his own car. It is you who call your dogs who bring their dogs to bring us down, to keep America white, to buff us out of your existence. You want to stand your ground? It means arm the whites. Sometimes I do wonder, where is God in all of this? But then I think, maybe God did give us the choice. Maybe he gathered a group of souls and asked for volunteers. Now who wants to go down there and inhabit a black or brown body? Maybe he said that. Maybe he said, who wants to take that on? Who will walk among white people and be their opportunity to learn compassion? And the bravest souls looked around at each other and raised their hands. Today, we are enjoying a Friday Forum with Julie Lithcott-Hames, author of Real American, a memoir, in conversation with Bakari Kitwana, senior media fellow at the Jamestown Project and author of The Hip Hop Generation. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, or those of you joining us via our radio broadcast, webcast, or Facebook live video. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at thecityclub.com or leave your, or your question in the comments section of the face of Facebook Live and our staff will try to work it into the program. Holding the microphones today are content coordinator Bliss Davis and membership and youth forum council chair T. <coughs> Olu Orisanya. May we please have the first question. Thank you. Um, I taught school for 40 years, and so much responsibility gets placed on teachers yeah. to be able to help our young people. And so with all the uh, self-hate and the toxic stress and the poverty and all these horrible things that are happening today, my question is, were there any teachers in your life who helped you believe in yourself 
And the second part of that is, what can teachers in the classroom do to help our young people who are, have some serious self-hatred? So your first answer may, ask, may answer my second question. Okay, thank you so much for that. Do I just respond or yes. do you? Yes. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Um, Professor Connell Jackson at Stanford University, he passed in 2005. He saw me long before I could see myself and mentored me. Um, uh, did I say he was African-American? African-American history professor at Stanford. I don't uh, think you say that in the book. That he's black? Of course I, I do. I say so. I didn't know what he was, right? Because I had just come with biracial me, white mother from Wisconsin, okay. and there okay. he stood up. Okay. And I was like, what is he? And my mother's like, you have a black resident fellow. And yeah. I said, what? Because <laughs> um, I'd never met a black person as light as me before. Uh, and he was sort of red bone, so he had a different shade to him. And anyway, <laughs> Professor Connell Jackson. Um, took an interest, asked me questions uh, when things were going well, when things weren't. Uh, he showed me he noticed me. He showed me I mattered. Uh, Jim Steyer, white professor at Stanford in a civil rights class I took, was the first class where I raised my hand at Stanford because he had a look, I had a look on my face saying, I want to answer this really hard question no one else is answering. And he nodded and looked at me and gave me permission to try, and I did. And he nodded and showed me with his behavior, like, yeah, girl. <laughs> and everybody else in the class, my friend Sabod Chandra, who you all know and love, um, was in that class. And you know, maybe everyone but Sabod, Sabod probably knew the answer, but everybody else was like writing down what I was saying. You know, Julie is saying something worthwhile. And I note that as a moment my voice was pushing out of the brambles into the clearing. Okay, trying to be what white, you know, better than white folks thought a black person could be a race I would try to run and win for the next 20 years, I say. So those are a couple folks who come to mind at the college level um, to, to the K through 12 environment. Um, writing, reading, um, caring. Let kids write about their experience. Encourage kids to read memoir, read memoir to kids. Read memoir about folks who reflect the kids' reality to the kids so they know I'm not alone. Others have trodden this path. You know, let them learn from the stories of others. And then radical allyship. You know, we're told, as you know, as people of color, and certainly people in other marginalized communities are told this, uh, what you say happened didn't happen, didn't happen the way you said it did, didn't matter, shouldn't have mattered, get over it, stop playing the victim. You know, what we need to do is be radical allies with our privilege of age and stage in life. Whatever privilege you've got, bring it to the cause of when that kid says, you know, I'm having this experience or this or that was said, you flank them with your privilege, you know, to say, I believe him, I believe her. You know, that's what I, I we all have the capacity to do that with young people in our lives. Uh, hi, my name is Mackenzie. I go to Hadley Brown. Um, basically, my question is, so um, I grew up in uh, the South in Atlanta, and I grew up in a school that was usually, um, it was mainly all mixed races, like everybody was there. It wasn't uh, majority any race. Um, I moved to Ohio a couple years ago, and I, it's my first time like being in a majority white community. And so I was wondering what are some, uh, because I've never like really had to deal with issues of like race being the main factor or being the elephant in the room, what are some ways that I can like lessen that tension in the room in my community at school and around me in my neighborhood? No, Michaela, I'm glad you're here. I was just in Atlanta two days ago. Were you in a private school or public? Right now? No, in, in Atlanta. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, uh, I, am, I am 
I am wishing you were not in a mostly white environment. That's me as a 50-year-old black woman remembering what it was like when I was your age, where I was. We are in a different time. A lot more people are conscious and open and tolerant and accepting and embracing of us. I hope that remains always true for you. What you need, what we all need, are mentors and peers who can extend a hand when the bad thing happens. We can't prevent the bad thing. The bad thing will crop up wherever you, wherever you are. But we need folks who've been there who can put an arm around us. This is why all the black kids sit together at the cafeteria, quote unquote, Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum's work, okay? For solidarity, for community, to just, you know, exchange stories and laugh and just relax a little bit into not having to be the other in the classroom and so on. So um, I hope that there will be black peers and mentors in your community, in your path, on your path. I was the only black child in my high school of 1200 and that was extremely hard. Um, regardless, your, your task, as is the task for all of us, is to figure out who you are, love that self, be that self, okay? Regardless of what anybody else thinks. Time helps, life experience helps, but just the fact that you're asking this question tells me, and that you're here, tells me you're pretty self-aware and you're farther down the path than I was when I was your age. Hi, oh, my goodness, I need some water. Hi, um, my name is Monet Bowie and I go to the Shaker Heights High School. And um, yeah, earlier you talked about how you often found yourself trying to separate yourself from that black stereotype to quote unquote, um, kind of fit in with other white students. And I often find myself doing that. I mean, I love fried chicken, I love watermelon, but I often find myself that in situations, I always have to be aware and have to be kind of that black ambassador. And so do you feel that like we should always be that black ambassador and that we should always be aware? And yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned those two stereotypes, right? Because part of that is in not eating those things is being the black ambassador, as you put it, but the flip side of that is not being the stereotype, you know, that will allow them to dip into their subconscious and, you know, attach you to all that and perpetuate that stereotype further. So this is all performing, okay? So I think I'm gonna just answer your question slightly differently, which is life, a good life is not about performing. You figure out what your authenticity is. You figure out, who you are and how you want to show up in any given room, in any given moment. Sometimes, you know, whether you think of it as code switching or it's a little bit more subtle than that, you are showing up in a room, in a conversation, so as to have the agency you want to have there so that your voice will be heard and the points you want to make might be made. You know, and you may show up in a different room and be able to speak and present and behave differently because that's what that room's norm is. This is all about you being you you getting to where you want to go. Um, but if, if there's a, I have to be this way in order to please them, if that happens too long, that's going to eat away at your soul. And that's when you have to say, you know what, I have to get out of this situation, this environment, this institution, this job, because I am not valued for who I am. You are not here to perform the part of you. You are here to be your authentic self. Mm. I am Hazel, and I read both of your books, enjoy them uh, both. I have uh, daughters who are biracial, they're half Chinese and half black, okay. and as one girl asked my daughter, is that a thing? 
Yes. Is that a thing? <laughs> <laughs> but my question was, I, when I read your uh, book on Real American, it seemed I was really struck with how horrible an experience you had being the only. Yeah. And when I had my daughters, I, I endeavored to put them in a school that was more representative of America. So yeah. it was like 20% black, 5% Asian, et cetera. Um, I think it worked out kind of okay. <laughs> but I sort of wonder like on the whole idea of like stereotype threat, yeah. where if you're the only one, how you feel. Is there like a critical mass? If I were to do this again, should I have tried something different? <laughs> yeah, uh, thank you, Hazel, for uh, referencing stereotype threat, which is a wonderful concept, I mean a terrible, yeah. wonderful, concept in psychology really developed um, by one of my former colleagues at Stanford, Professor Claude Steele, um, who wrote Whistling Vivaldi uh, and other books. But uh, so, you know, the, the extent to which we are members of a group about which negative stereotypes are held, we can um, perform, we can wither under the weight of that stereotype. And when we're reminded of that stereotype, we can underperform further. Um, uh, to the point of critical mass, I do think critical mass is essential. I don't know what critical mass is in any moment, but you want to, um, uh, you know, it's it, it could be it, it could be a handful of people. It is feeling safe. It is feeling there are spaces and places where I can go, and feel supported and loved and believed in the truth of my experience. Um, so I think you did a great thing by you know raising your kids in a community that had that kind of diversity. Most places don't offer a black community and an Asian community that has any critical that we both have a critical mass. So given your daughter's um, you know ethnic heritage, that sounds like a pretty pretty cool choice for you to have made. Um, how are they? Is what I would. Oh, hold on. Sorry, sorry. We we just broke the rules. Yeah, okay. There's like supposed to be a microphone. You can't okay. speak without a mic because okay. it won't be on the. <laughs> one thing I learned after I married my husband 25 years ago is that Chinese people think they're white sometimes. Yes. Which I didn't understand. <laughs> but anyway, so my daughter thought and she was. And they don't necessarily want you to come home, they, the, their Chinese son or daughter to come home with a black person, right? <laughs> right. So my young older daughter went off to Stanford, and her second year she called me and said, Mama, I'm black. So she became black. <laughs> that was Jan. That was Jan Barker Alexander's work. Um. And my younger daughter, who looks more Asian, is still trying to be Asian, so. Okay. Well, each individual has to come to their own sense of self. And I sit here as a 50-year-old black woman who has biracial ancestry. But I got to this identity, having been told I was black by a black father, white mother, raising me in white towns where I didn't know what black meant, searching for clues from the Cosby show, you know, or good times, <laughs> or the Jefferson, you know what I'm saying? I literally watch television to try to figure out how to be me. And then when they offered biracial as a term in the late, nine, in the late 80s, biracial, multiracial, I clung to this term like it was an organ transplant. It was like all of a sudden I make sense. All of a sudden I could breathe. I don't have to deny my white mother. There's a term to describe me. But I think I was, uh, it w I say in the book it was a fleeting lover. The truth is it didn't leave me, I left it. I, um, I came back to blackness authentically when I finally had that moment of shedding the loathing, loving the black self. Um, that's my journey. I'm not here to tell you or your daughters or anybody else how they should identify. We're all seeking belonging in communities where we can be ourselves and be embraced and loved. And for each one of us, you know, it's, it's one of the most personal decisions and feelings we can experience. Where can I be me? Who are my people? 
where do I feel unconditionally loved? So I just wish for all of us that we find, you know, those places where we can be that, where we can be embraced like that. I found it interesting that when you said that uh, you grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, having gone to the University of Wisconsin in the 60s, Wisconsin. and I won't, <laughs> which at the time was a very liberal school, but not the most liberal day and age in the sixth, early 60s. Um, I found that the, while the school was an island and there was a degree of liberality, the town was very, very racist in some time, in origin. And it came about, and I'll ne it's probably the, one of the incidents that affected my life in the, to, to this day, is that when there was a young girl, African-American girl at the time, who could have, from a very successful family and was in a white sorority and all that, and we studied together, and she asked me out. And I remember that I was a little bit concerned about that. I mean, people didn't do that in 1960, 61. And I remember going way out in the suburbs. And I remember very clearly that I was the one, as much as her, who were basically shunned upon for doing what we did at that particular time. I'd like to know what you, first of all, how, how did you get to Madison? And, and what, I mean, tell me about your overall experience at the, in the community. You, yeah. Um, so my father's work took us around the country. Uh, Lagos was where I was born, Manhattan, across the Hudson from Manhattan, and then Madison in 75 to 77. Uh, he was at the university, uh, associate vice chancellor for health services, um, and we lived in Madison. Uh, I was third and fourth grade for me. When Carter uh, came to power, came to power. I don't think of Jimmy Carter. <laughs> when President Carter was elected, he appointed my father, and we moved to Northern Virginia, where I spent fifth through eighth grade in a very diverse, it was the only time in my life as a child I lived in a very diverse community racially and socioeconomically. And then Reagan beat Carter, and we had to leave, and the question was where to go. My father, who was the decision maker in our family, decided we were going to go back to Wisconsin, but they chose to move to Middleton, which is a suburb of Madison. And, and when you were there, it was all cornfields and you know a few buildings, and um, truly. And I think my father, being born in 1918, coming out of the Jim Crow South in Oklahoma, having made it, constantly try to make it and prove what he could do, wanted that house with that land, you know, where he could ride his lawnmower, you know, one of those big tractor mowers around that much grass, you know, and like plant the flowers and have the big driveway. And it was all white people and corn and isolation for me. Mm -hmm. um, um, so there were, uh, as I said, they elected me student body president and they called me the, the they called me nigger. And um, my best friend said, you know, watching Gone with the Wind, wouldn't it have been great to have lived back then? <laughs> and I said, no, and she said, why not? Because I would have been a slave. Oh, but, I, but if you weren't black, well, I am black. <laughs> and she said, I don't think of you as black, I think of you as normal, which she meant as a compliment, mm. right? And a lot of folks mm. say that. And what they mean is you're not like those black people I'm afraid of or I hate and so on. You're like us. So I felt the double insult because she was insulting black people by saying that but then I knew as this biracial black kid in all white Middleton that I didn't even know what it meant to be black. You know, it was, it was, so her saying, I don't think of you as black, I think of you as normal. You know, I was like, you know, don't say that. I am black and I'm trying to figure that out. Um, I was an oddity, I was so odd when I went out to a public pool 
I was about 15. This woman walked past me. I'm trying to find a lounge chair to put my towel on. And this woman comes toward me and stops and turns around as she passes me. She stops and she goes, oh my gosh, you're so tan. <laughs> and you know, that's not racism. That didn't hurt me. But it told me that I was so unusual as far as all the humans she'd ever known. She had no context for the fact that I wasn't tan. I was an African-American, you know, or biracial, whatever the term would have been in her mind at the time. So that's a, that's a summary of what it was like for me and why I chose to leave. You know, I looked east, I looked west, I had to get out of there, I had to find critical mass, I had to not be otherized, I didn't want people to keep telling me, I didn't match my own family members. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area because you cannot make assumptions there walking down the street about who's with whom on any measure, you know? <laughs> Seriously, y'all are laughing, but this is, you know, right? Yeah, I find belonging there. I finally found a place where I could be myself and not be questioned. So um, I'm gonna try to get this question out without crying, uh, but like you, I'm uh, a light-complected 50-year-old woman uh, born in Wisconsin and grew what? up uh, here in Ohio. Oh my gosh. And my, oh my entire gosh. life, um, I, I won't, as an Asian American, I won't try to claim that the experiences that I had would be anything that compared to what African Americans have experienced, but I've had plenty. Um, and as you know, I, I'm the mom of triplet, triplet boys, boys that were gonna, are gonna be 14 soon. And they were um, four and a half, roughly, when President Obama was elected. And I had this naive notion that we had somehow crossed this huge, crossed the Nile, right? To, to, that my kids would have a different experience than what I had had, um, and that I had suppressed for so long. And now, in this day, clearly something has been unleashed um, in America, and I feel it, the full wrath of it as a, an immigrant. Um, I, my parents came here in um, the early 60s, and I was born here, and my children are, are third generation but we are still not white, and so therefore we are viewed as illegal and as immigrants. And I have chosen to segregate myself or isolate myself in a bubble of liberal uh, Cleveland. I live in the east side. I send my children to a small, uh, private, very Montessori liberal school, but it has also been unleashed on them. But what I find hardest is actually my white liberal friends who live in my community who are continually shocked at what is unleashing, and they have this notion that racism doesn't exist in our existence, that it's, well, the only racists in America are in Alabama or in Mississippi or in, you Not know, in their own police force? Yes, and when I sit to describe things that my children are being told they look like terrorists or that I have been shoved in the grocery store and told to go back where I came from, they're perpetually shocked, and it's exhausting it to say, this is happening every day in our little liberal bubble. Yes. How do I navigate that and yeah. get them to see that it's not Mississippi and Alabama, it's all of America? Yes. Is it Mina? Mina. Mina is the beloved wife of my friend Sabode, and I'm just meeting her for the first time today. So thank you so much for sharing that, and I feel you from here. And I'm in solidarity with you around the experience, and I'm sorry that this is happening, and it hurts, and I know it. And I believe I've told so many of the truths of my experience here because telling it helps me heal, helps me create distance between it and me, because otherwise it just hunkers down inside of me, 
and you know becomes this cancer inside of me. Um, you've brought up whiteness, and I know time is short, but that's the elephant in the room. Okay, America was built on the presumption of white supremacy. It is what enabled a group of people to come and take the land from the people who were here. It is what enabled them to take a group of other people and, uh, and sh shackle them and turn them into slaves and make them work the land without pay. That is how we became the greatest capitalist nation in the world. Greatest meaning largest economy. You know, we have done this. This is America's truth. It is not the narrative America likes to tell of itself, but it is so, this is, a, you know, America at its foundation up to the present, that whiteness is better, you know, and that we have gradations down to the darkest, and the lighter you are, the better you are, the more believable, the more deserving, the more American, and the darker you are, the less all those things. And we have to root this out because it is undoing us. It hurts us. We are capable of so much as humans. We send people to the freaking moon and we send machines to Mars, you know, and we solve the genome and we can't figure out how to like each other, how to actually have compassion for someone with a different skin tone. This is the work of our time. And how can anyone in Cleveland, Ohio, given what happened to Tamir Rice, have the audacity to say it only happens in Alabama, okay? Give me a break. A city that shoots a child and the killer doesn't go to jail has a problem, okay? And we're not immune to it in the Bay Area either. I'm not coming here with some California attitude like you people here, like solve this problem. Like, no, <laughs> like we, this is us, you know? So choose different groups of people. I can't say this because we're live streamed and someone will see this, so I'm not gonna say it. <laughs> But there's a group I had to quit in my community because I was tired of the, the of educating my white liberal friends. You know, just sort of the, the amnesia they had or the incredible unknowing they had about the experience of people not like them destroys me. I choose to be in conversation with people who understand, who get it, who read media beyond the media uttered and articulated by their own people by which I mean the narratives of black and brown people, the podcasts, watch the movies, look at the television shows, broaden your mind to the reality of Americans who are brown. I want to be with people who spend most of their time thinking about those things. Today at the City Club of Cleveland, we have been enjoying a Friday forum with Julie Lithcott-Hames, author of Real American, a memoir, in conversation with Bakari Kitwana, senior media fellow at the Jamestown Project and the author of The Hip Hop Generation. And for those of you listening and not here present, you just missed a standing ovation. Ms. Lithgott-Hames appears as part of our Authors in Conversation series supported in part by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We are grateful to many of you here today for your support of the City Club programming through that public grant. 
Community partners for today's events are Lake Erie Link, Inc. and the YWCA of Greater Cleveland. We appreciate your support in promoting today's forum. The sale of Ms. Lithcott Hames' book, Real American, a memoir, is provided by a cultural exchange. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Ms. Lithcott Hames and Mr. Kitwana. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.